I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 24. You should have read this. Uh, we, we hit this point, rather, in our, uh, our reading guide just a couple of days ago. And so we're kind of on the other side of it now as we continue to make our way through 2 Samuel, now finishing 2 Samuel, actually, and moving on to Chronicles. But um, this particular text just uh, was so striking to me, and I wanted it to because of how it challenges our thinking, right? I've said it before, and I'll say it again, that my job as your pastor is to push and pull all of us to a greater understanding of the glory of God as revealed in His Word. So, my goal remains the same, even, or maybe even especially so, when it comes to texts or topics which make us uncomfortable and which challenge the understanding of our flesh. And today's text does just that, as it presents quite the... the truth for us to grapple with. I recently watched a formal debate between a pastor and uh, an atheist psychologist, and the focus of the debate was that of ethics. And the, the goal or the challenge, rather, for the atheist was to present how the atheist worldview has a basis for ethics. And the modern secular worldview, this very worldview which this atheist was arguing from, would have us think that truth is subjective, that it can be defined by society at large as part of some greater conversation which is happening around ourselves and within our societies. And in the eyes of this worldview, it allows for people uh, to, in, in their eyes, this worldview allows for people to be truly happy, which is the pinnacle of creation in this worldview, right? It's to be happy, to, to find that happiness within oneself and within the world in which one lives. That's that worldview's way of thinking. Now, there's a lot wrong with this, obviously, as it pertains to the truth of Scripture, and it creates many slippery slopes. However... There's one glaring issue that this type of logic creates, and it has no answer for, in fact. And that is, what do we do then with evil? As even the most hardened atheist has to acknowledge that evil exists, that there are people who are truly evil. But the problem with their worldview is evil cannot exist. Because if you don't have absolute truth, you therefore have no basis by which to call something absolutely evil and wrong. It's not enough for us to say that we believe in the power and the sovereignty and the providence of God and yet follow with some sort of accept. Like I know God is, is all-powerful and providential, and, but except when it comes to right? And so providence, just to make sure we have our terms clearly defined, providence is sovereignty with purpose and plan. It's to say that God not only wields his power, but he does so purposefully. And today's passage is not an easy one for us to grapple with because it takes into account the re reality of true evil and God's providence in such. 
And it, it will, this passage may very well challenge the ideas and thought processes of some of us this morning because it touches on such heavy subjects. But not only that, it highlights that God not only allows evil to exist, but that he bends it to his will to ultimately accomplish his good purposes. And we'll see the ultimate example of that as revealed in Scripture. So 2 Samuel chapter 24, our text that we'll mainly be unpacking is verses 10 through 17, but we'll kind of backtrack a little bit and give ourselves some contextualization here. Uh, So I'll ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word as we read from 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 10 through 17. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we unpack your word and seek to have a greater understanding, not only of it, but through it, to have a greater understanding in relationship with you and how you have called us to live in this world, to make your glory known, I pray that you would, through your spirit within us, enlighten our understanding of your word, that we may have a greater grasp of it and therefore give you the greater glory. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, church. So to contextualize this for us just a bit before we dive in, uh, David has just had a a great group of mighty men join his ranks, right? And so uh, we see that in chapter 23 is these mighty men, and we see them named and and some of their uh, accomplishments that they do on behalf of David. And, um, And so... Here we see at the beginning of 24, the real 
instigation or what happens leading into what we just read in verse 10, which begins our text for today, that David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. So David has sinned. But, but how did we get to this point? Well, verse 1 of chapter 24 tells us exactly what is happening here. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go, number Israel and Judah. So we'll pause right there with verse 1, because there's a lot to unpack here with just this one verse, considering that David has admittedly sinned in taking a census, but now we see here in verse 1 that it is the Lord who incited him to do so. So what do we do with that? Well, let's unpack a few things first. Now, this lone verse, as I said, carries with it some questions about evil and sin and judgment and and God's agency and such things. So I want to make sure that we unpack this verse very carefully and in accordance with the whole counsel of Scripture. All right. So the first thing we need to consider is the very first word of verse one. That is what? Again. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So before we know anything else in this part of this story, we know that God is not pleased with his people. And that is not the first time that they have done something worthy of his anger and judgment. Now, if you've been following along your Bible reading or you've been in Sunday school at any point in your life, you know that you might be saying to yourself, well, duh, God was not anger, I mean, not happy with his people. There's many instances with that, uh, of that throughout the entire Old Testament. In fact, the entire Old Testament is built off the reality that not just mankind's sinfulness and rebellion against God, but specifically his covenant people's inability to follow his covenant continuously angers the Lord, their rebellion against him, right? And so this is clearly a repeated pattern throughout the biblical authors, throughout the story of scripture. So the question is not really, is God angry with his people, but what is it this time? It's almost what it becomes as you read through the Old Testament, right? But specifically in reference to this again, If you go back to chapter 21, the most recent contextual example of God being displeased with his people goes back to chapter 21, verse 1, and there we read, now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. So this is a three-year-long famine, year after year. So again, not only does the, the author here tell us that it was exactly three years, but it tells us the insight into how the people felt. Like, when is this famine going to end? And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the situation surrounding this instance of God's judgment is that the people are seemingly unaware or indifferent to their sinfulness, that there has been something that has happened that has caused them as a nation to be out of step with the Lord. And so God has caused this famine to come upon them in judgment of their sinful state. And so David, here at, at three years later, apparently, goes before the face of the Lord. 
And then it is revealed to him that there is blood guilt against the house of Saul because he was put the Gibeonites to death. So David, we see this uh, seeming the discernment of the people and of David is so dulled that it's after three years that he comes to cry before the face of the Lord. And if you're unfamiliar with the Gibeonites or the sin mentioned here, I'd encourage you to go back and read Joshua 9. Uh, because it's an incredible story where we see the Lord allow the people of Gibeon, so a pagan people living in the land where he has sent the Israelites to conquer, and the Lord allows the people of Gibeon to become a part of his covenant community. He grafts in a, a completely different people, just a foretaste of what he is setting forth to do in the church. So Saul had apparently tried to commit genocide against the Gibeonites. So failing the covenant that the Lord had allowed the Gibeonites to make to become part of his people, right? Saul did this under his leadership. And the Lord was displeased because there was just, they were just as much a part of the covenant people as anybody else. And so here we see the reemergence of a few things from session eight of this series, where we looked at the dangers of unconfessed sin in Joshua 7. And there we looked at the sin of Achan. And I want to want to make a few reminders of some of the things that we saw there because it it really shows the consistency of God's word, especially when it comes to sin, and it shows uh, the dangers of sin. So there we saw our first point in that sermon of Joshua seven was that unconfessed sin has communal consequences. So God has created his people for communal living. Thus, our unconfessed sin and hidden sins do not only affect our lives, but the lives of those around us. And here we see that coming to bear once again in our text for this morning. The other thing we saw in that sermon was unconfessed sin is not hidden. As Achan attempted to hide his sin, he was only able to hide it from who? From man. But unconfessed unconfessed sin is not hidden because... God sees the heart. So we cannot be fooled into thinking that we can hide anything from an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present creator God. And the third thing I want to remind us of from that sermon was unconfessed sin causes unforeseen harm. And that unconfessed sin corrodes from the inside out, that it's a gangrenous rot that will leave us wallowing in a pigsty, longing to eat like them. And so, As we consider those things, let's again see here in our text this morning, God's anger has been kindled against Israel. But what's interesting and thought-provoking is what we read of God's response. You see, in chapter 21, we read of God causing, directly causing three years of famine in judgment of Saul's sin. And Saul isn't even the leader anymore. But yet, because his people are still out of step with him, Out of step with his truth, with his word, God shows judgment against that sin. And here we read in our text for this morning, he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. So what becomes clear as we continue reading is that this very thing which the Lord put before David to do was sinful. The Lord willed that David would sin and thus bring punishment upon Israel. Now, what becomes even more fascinating about this passage 
is that it is also recorded in 1 Chronicles as well. If you're familiar with Chronicles, you know that it mirrors much of Samuel and Kings. But there's one major difference we see in 1 Chronicles 21.1 that we see here in 2 Samuel 24.1. Here's what we read in 1 Chronicles 21.1. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So, I want to unpack that real quick for us. So, the author of 1 Chronicles uses the books of Samuel and Kings, so 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. He uses those books as his main source for writing his record of Israel's history. And the general theme of Chronicles is how Israel's repeated rebellion against the Lord led to the Babylonian exile. That's what the author of Chronicles wants to, wants to show, is the grand history of God's faithfulness in the midst of rebellion and how sin, specifically the sin of his covenant people, brings about his judgment. And so that's the, the goal of the author of Chronicles. And uh, so to tell that long arcing story of God's redemptive history, he uses these historical books of Samuel and Kings. In fact, many times we see him quote these books directly. It's word for word. What you read in Samuel is what you read in Chronicles. Or what you read in Kings is what you read in Chronicles. However, in this verse, we have a clear difference between these two lines. So, what, what we need to know is that has to be intentional. That the author here of Chronicles wants to emphasize a different part of the story that the author of Samuel emphasized. So what we see is that these things are not in competition with each other, but they're both pointing to the same truth. Because we see God's word is consistent. It does not contradict itself. So how do we, how do we unpack these seemingly unpackable things? Like how do we... How do we even these things out? How do we come to grips with this? What we see here, again, is not a contradiction, but rather two authors with different points of emphasis on the same story, each telling an important detail that informs the other. And that brings me to the first point there on your outline this morning, that God's providence does not stop with sin and evil. And we must understand this. We can't just avoid difficult to understand passages like this and settle within a faith that makes us feel comfortable and that is easy for us to kind of hold in our hand and grasp, right? The existence of sin and evil in this world does not come apart from, in opposition to, nor cause the collapse of God's providential working of all things in his world. So hear me in this, though, because I know where this can kind of cause us to like, now wait a second, right? That can kind of make us to furrow our brow. I want you to understand, God does not cause evil. However, what is clear here is that God guides, allows, and incites sinful and, yes, even evil things to happen. And we know this because of what we read in Ephesians 1.11. That in Christ, God the Father works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
or what we read in Proverbs 16.4, which is this. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So that even in evil and sin, God has a purpose and he has worked it according to the counsel of his will in Christ. And so the more we understand that, the better we can see God's action and purposes at work in our everyday lives. But here's the thing. This thought and idea offends us to our core. Why? Because it forces us to even further come to grips with the reality that our will is not the decisive agent in this world. Everything in us that is in our sinful flesh would like us to believe that we are the decisive forces in the universe, that we decide our happiness, we decide what is good and right. We would like to believe that we can be who we want to be, do what we want to do, blaze our own trail. But what is also offended here is our own sense of justice. Our standards would say, that's wrong. How could God do such a thing? And we see this is in complete consistency with what we learn from the book of Job. What do we see in the book of Job? In chapter 1, verses 20 through 22, if you want to make a note of that or it'll be on the screen, then Job arose. So this is after he has been informed of all the calamity that has come upon his life, all the awful things, the truly evil things that have occurred. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I sh shall I return. And then here's the kicker. Look at who Job looks to. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So the Lord, Job looks not to, oh, the enemy has been on the attack. The enemy has done this against me. He's, uh, all this is against me, right? He falls on the ground after hearing all of these evil, terrible, awful things that have happened in his life. He worships and he says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. So he knows and is honoring the one who is in control of all. Although the point of, the Job, uh, of what we see in the story of Job is that the Lord allows Satan to partake in this venture. But notice Verse 22, right there of Job 1. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So even though he acknowledges that it's the Lord who is in control, the Lord has taken away, the Lord gave, blessed be the name of the Lord, he is not charging God with having done wrong in this. And that's what we see at work and at play, the same consistency here in the story of David in this census. And the next point there on your outline is that God, the sub point, is that God is sovereign over our sin. And I want to make sure I articulate this truth very clearly here. Does God cause us to sin? No, he doesn't have to, right? We do a good job of that on our own because we're born into this world, 
in such a way, right? The judge of the earth shall do what is just. That's the words of Noah or uh, of Abraham rather from Genesis 18. Verse 25, we see, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? No, God uses even our sinfulness and yes, evil to accomplish his own good purposes. The Lord providentially purposes all sinful urges which come upon our flesh, even the ones we give into, for his glory. We see this truth in Romans 9. If you want to turn there again, it'll be on the screen behind me. In Romans 9, as Paul is discussing God's choosing between Jacob and Esau, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated, Paul poses the question, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, what could possibly be the Lord's motivation, the Lord's purpose and will in causing David to succumb to such a sin? What could be God's purpose in providentially working even our sins for his glory? Well, as we continue reading, we're given a humble picture of God's will in our sin and the evil that we see in the world. So we pick back up with our text for today. So we see David goes through with this. He, he takes this census and uh, it's, it's come about that there's uh, 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And then we're told in verse 10, this is where David is convicted of his sinfulness. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. So notice that this does not take away the responsibility of man for his own sin. This is the plan. And this is the purpose that David and indeed all of God's people, as David leads God's people, be brought low in their sin, throw them himself at the mercy of the Lord, and God therefore be given the greater glory in the heart of David and the people of God as a whole. This is the point is that in realizing his own sinfulness, David is brought low. Why does he need to be brought low? This indeed is most likely the sin. We're not exactly told why this is a sin, that David take a census, but the inference that we can take is that David was trusting in the might of his military rather in the provision and and the sustenance of the Lord. And so David's heart strikes him after he numbers the people. 
And David says to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. And this is the purpose, that he be brought low and humbled at God's mercy and grace. And the next point there on your outline speaks to this, that the Lord works all things for the glory of his name. He is given even greater glory when our hearts are brought low before him. Now, I want you to think and just re remember in your mind about all the times in your life in which you have had to face consequences, suffered the consequences of others, or have been brought low. And now, as you imagine such difficult moments, to whom did you have to turn? And how much brighter did the light of the gospel seem in those moments? The light of the gospel and God's grace and loving mercy shine all the brighter in the moments of our lowliness. And God uses those humbling moments to humble us at his glory and provision. Oh, that we would wonder at how God masterfully uses even our sin to glorify his name in our hearts. And in doing so, he brings us low by the waves of his discipline that settle us back on the solid ground that is Christ. God makes his glory known in repentant hearts, and repentance begins with a heart struck with conviction. And that's what we see David happen here in David's heart, is his heart is struck with having sinned against the Lord. And so he seeks God in repentance. This was another point from session eight of our series back in Joshua 7, where we saw that the Lord uses unconfessed sin to humble his people. And that is exactly what the Lord is doing in this moment, is humbling his people that they may glorify his name, return to him in repentance and conviction. We continue reading there in verse 11. We pick back up. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad, the word of the Lord comes to Gad that he's supposed to go to David and present these three options for his own judgment and discipline of this sin. The very sin which God willed that he enter into, right? Or that God is using to glorify his name. And so he's told to say these three things I offer you. So David, verse 13. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, and these are the options. Three years of famine come upon your land. Well, what did we read back in chapter 21? That they had just had three years of famine, Right? And that's what caused initially David to go before the face of the Lord. That's what initially kindled the Lord's anger. Because again, the Lord's anger was kindled here. So David doesn't want that option. Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Well, I think David has had enough pursuit of his enemies. If you've read the Psalms, you would understand that, right? So. He doesn't want that option because he's experienced that plenty in his life. Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider 
and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. So again, this has brought him low. This has brought him to a point of incredible distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. So don't let us, our discipline or our judgment be at the hand of man, but let us fall into the hand of the Lord. Let me not fall into the hand of man. Now, lest you think that this is a license to sin, I want to point something out here as part of this story. Let us note that sin still comes with discipline, judgment, and reproach. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Shall we continue in sin so that God may use our sin to glorify himself? By no means. God purposefully uses the sin in our lives to bring us low in discipline that we may bring his name greater glory, not that we may wallow in it, that the light of his glory and grace might shine even brighter against the darkness. God uses our sin, not that we indulge in it, relish it, or be fulfilled by it or affirmed in it, but that through our humbling, we see his grace all the clearer. And that's the next point there on your outline, that God's discipline is itself an act of grace. And the purpose of discipline is to bring us to a greater understanding of God's grace, not to cause us to question it. As I've pointed out already, what we learn here in this story is in complete consistency with what we read in the book of Job. And through his humbling... Job is brought to an even greater awe and wonder of God the Father than he had before. Consider this prayer of Job from chapter 42, verses 1 through 3. I, I didn't input this one, so uh, you'll just have to listen or make note of it, and you can go back and read it. But Job 42, verses 1 through 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. So how does David respond to his moment of being brought low? So as we continue reading, the pestilence comes upon Israel from morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. And the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, and the Lord relented. It was the Lord who was clearly in control here. Relented from the calamity, said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. That'll be important here in just a little bit. And so read right there what we see in verse 17. We see David's response to all this calamity, this evil, this destruction that has come upon his people. His, his faith was in his numbers, and now his numbers have been brought low in judgment. Verse 17, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. 
But these sheep, what have they done? So now he's convicted that his sin has brought judgment upon the people as a whole. But again, that's what the Lord is doing. He's using the, this sin of even just one to transform the community, to bring the community to an even greater understanding of his glory and grace. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And so in this incredibly heartfelt prayer, David is overcome with grief and guilt and conviction at the death of 70,000 men. And so this is obviously no small manner. I mean, consider the population of Henderson times four. That's how many people die here. And what we're told is, again, that David saw the angel who was causing destruction. David knows that it's at the behest of the Lord that all these people are dying. But watch what God does through this. So David prays, let your hand be against me. David has been brought so low that he completely humbles himself on behalf of his people, praying that God would take the judgment out on him and on his house alone. Now, what did we look at last week in the Davidic covenant and who came from the house of David? Here's the thing. God would answer David's prayer, but not for David and not in the way that David intended. The Lord's hand would be against David's house and against his anointed, not in David, but in Christ. And the next point that you see there on your outline is that the cross portrays the totality of God's providence. So in looking to the cross, we can exhibit the same confidence of David to pray God's hand against us, to pray from the midst of despair, to pray knowing that he who exhibited such grace and mercy on the cross, not sparing his own son, but giving him up for us all, how will he not also in him give us all things. At the cross, God providentially used the disdain of sin and evil to glorify himself in Christ. And we read this also in Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. And speaking of God's everlasting love, Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he who commands against murder uses the existence of that very evil 
to redeem for himself a people and sending his son to be murdered on the cross. He who abhors injustice would use an unjust trial to convict his own son. He who commands covenant faithfulness would use an unfaithful, rebellious people to crucify the true covenant upholder. At the cross, God paradoxically and providentially uses the means and measures of the sin and evil of this world to accomplish his perfect will. And that's how we can see how God can even purpose our sin and fleshly nature to accomplish his will and purposes of glorifying his name. And it is in looking to his cross that we can find ourselves confident, hopeful, and at peace no matter what evil we see or experience. No matter what sin entangles us, knowing that he is producing in us a well-proofed faith tested by fire more pure than gold. What's interesting is we also see the immediate results of what God was purposing in this, in this story. Jump there to verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, go up. Raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So God's wisdom and his information, his, his insight to David is to go offer up a sacrifice to the Lord. And so he goes up to this threshing floor of Arana. And then jump down to verse 24. As he, he's trying to work out a price with Arana. Arana wants to give him the... Uh, threshing floor for free after he hears the conditions and what's going on around all of this. And he wants to give it to him for free. And this is what we read in verse 24. But the king said to Arana, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Now, before we continue reading here, I want to show you a picture just like where this threshing floor of Arana was located and conjunction with the city. If you'll go ahead and put that picture up, please. There we go. So you see, this was Israel at the time of David. And you have this hill side that's just outside the city right there. That's the threshing floor of Arana. Threshing floor is where they would gather, harvest, and kind of thresh it out, sort it out, all those types of things. So David goes up to this hill and, and purchases this hill because he said, I'm not going to take something and get, because while he's there, he gets up there, he goes up there, not with any animals prepared for sacrifice, but Arana has a herd there. And Arana says, you can use this herd. Yeah, I'll give you the sacrifice and I'll give you the threshing floor for free. And David said, I'm not making sacrifices to the Lord that cost me nothing. And so what's interesting here, David goes on to buy the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built an altar there to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Now again, and you see where that threshing floor is located, knowing that David goes up there unprepared to make a sacrifice and he purchases the city. He goes up to the threshing floor for the purpose of seeking to make this sacrifice he goes up there empty-handed. Now, this is where I want us to see the beauty of the cross, where I want us to see the beauty of God's providence and God working in this sin to make his glory known and the sacrifice made for us on the cross. The threshing floor of Arana was located right there on the top of Mount Moria, which at that time was just outside the city. And so 
David says, I'm not going to make this sacrifice that's free. And I want us to see just a little side note there. Sin requires sacrifice, and sacrifice comes at a cost, okay? So Mount Moriah was the very mountain where Abraham, in faith, went up out of obedience to offer Isaac as a sacrifice in Genesis 22. But he goes up to offer Isaac, and the Lord provides a ram. So David goes up empty-handed and is provided with a great sacrifice. Not only that, but David purchases the plot, and that would later become the site of the Temple Mount. So you see how God was working in this sinfulness to bring his servant David low, and through David to bring his people low, that his people might glorify his name. And the very last point there on your outline, that God redeems evil for our good and his glory. Because even evil must bend to the will of God Almighty and be used for his good purposes. The light is brighter because of the night. God uses evil, wills evil, and purposes evil that his good will, may, his good will may come to pass. I'll call you to remember what Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So in that, Joseph was able to see that God had allowed what had happened, the evil that had happened, the unjustness that had happened to him to happen so that he could work out that he would bring his family there, therefore starting the nation of Israel, therefore rescuing Israel from Egypt and bringing them all the way to this point. So friends, as you consider like, how do, how do I come to grips with this? How do I kind of wrestle with this? And the answer is that you just rest in the providence of God, knowing that even in your sin, he is working for his glory and for your good, that he can make even the bad choices that you make edifying for you so that you learn and are brought low in those things that you might give his name greater glory. And now here's the reality. If you are lost in sin, then in order to get to that place where God is using your sin to bring you low and give his name glory, you must come to him in repentance because that's what David does. He's, he comes here in repentance, seeking that the Lord would save them from what is happening. And so if you don't know Jesus and you've never repented of sin and never turned to him, trusting in the work of Christ on the cross, let this story move you to do so. Because it beautifully portrays how God uses even and bends even the evil of this world to glorify his name and accomplish his purposes. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to move into our regular time of response. I'll be right here on the front row if you would like to talk about that. If you need prayer, please come find me. I'll pray with you. If you need to talk more about this, I would be, I would be more than willing to do so. But again, this time of response, as always, is for us to respond as the Lord has pierced our hearts with his word. So if that means sitting in silent prayer, if that means standing in praise, do so. Let's pray, church. God, we love you.
I pray that you would continue to illuminate our understanding of you, our understanding of ourselves, not according to our own feelings or thoughts, but according to your word. And that your word would shape how we relate to one another, how we relate to those who do not know you, how we relate to you, and ultimately how we make your glory known and how your glory is continually made known in our hearts. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.